0: You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research.
1: Avid Research.
0: An Australian STEM podcast
1: where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show, team. My name's Amelia, and today we have a very cool show ahead of you. We possibly have the largest number of guests on the show that's ever happened in Avid Research history. So. Welcome, everybody.
2: Hello. Hi. 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 there. Hi.
1: We're currently talking to uh, six people who are on the RV Investigator, and I might just start with welcoming Hannah. Hi, Amelia. Who are you? I'm Hannah
3: Power. I'm an Associate Professor of Coastal and Marine Science at the University of Sydney, University of Newcastle.
2: Win. <laughs> she right. was with us until
4: we
1: got very
4: silly and let it go.
3: It's the end of a very long shift. <laughs> we've been up since before midnight.
1: Uh, and for those listening, it's currently um, 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning.
3: And we've had some very long day.
1: Who else have we got in the room? <laughs>
4: Uh, hi, Amelia. Uh, I'm Dr. Mike Kinsella, uh, lecturer in coastal and ocean geoscience from the University of Newcastle. Welcome, Dr.
2: Mike. Hi, I'm
0: Kendall Mollison. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of
5: Newcastle. I'm David Webb. Uh, I work for CSIRO um, as part of the support team on board uh, the investigator.
2: Hi, I'm Jess. I'm a third year undergrad student studying a degree of Coastal Marine Science at the University of Newcastle.
4: And I'm Tom Hubble. I'm the Chief Scientist. I'm an Associate Professor of Engineering Geology and Marine Geology at the University of Sydney's School of Geosciences, ex Ocean Sciences Institute from the 90s. I've been out coming out here since 1980.
1: That's fantastic. Welcome, everybody. We have such a range of people on the show today. Can we start with, you know, hopefully a really simple question? Where are you?
3: Well, we're currently off the coast of New South Wales, off Yamba, and we're in about two and a half thousand metres of water. And we're taking some, collecting some seismic data right now as we speak.
1: Okay. There was a a lot of cool things in that. How do you collect seismic data from a ship?
4: We use um, devices called air guns to make a deep, sudden and sharp sound. And the seismic system's a bit like the echo sounder that everyone's got in their fishing boat, except it can penetrate the sediment layers beneath the sea floor. And every successive layer of sediment that it hits, we get a pulse back from that. So we can get A picture of the subsea floor layering. We can even see the deep basement, which is beneath the sediment layers, using these air guns. And we've got, just to reassure everybody, we have a large number of people watching out for whales to make sure that they don't get too close to the sound source and hurt their ears. So we're very, very aware of that, and we're running during the day so that we can't cause the whales any problems whatsoever. And we've seen a few, and they've kept their. They know what they're doing. They're keeping their distance from us. It's really, really been quite a relief to me that we haven't had to do donuts in the ocean so that we go back and pick up the line somewhere else.
1: My goodness, the thought of uh, rogue whales coming in and involving themselves in research and getting in the way of the gun.
4: they are not rogues, They're a well-supervised, <laughs> well-supervised maternal pod with a, 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 a matriarch and a bunch of. Little chappies and a bull male off to the north and just <laughs> doing their thing. Fishing for squid, we think.
1: You sound awfully knowledgeable about whales for people who are doing seismic surveys.
4: Well, we had to be. We, went, we even went and got trained at great yeah. expense. We
0: did a two-day um, marine mammal observing training course so that we were trained to spot whales. <laughs>
4: And train to make the decisions about when to turn off the noise.
2: That's right.
1: Sorry, you've just mentioned way too many new things in a very short period of time, and I don't know where to take the line of questioning. I might go back though to the air guns. How does that work? How far, well, how do they work? And then how far can they see, see, sorry, wrong word, but like detect underneath the sea floor?
4: Okay, yeah. How do they work? Okay, that's probably where we start. They run on compressed air and what we do is we fill up a 150 cubic inch chamber with air at 140 bars which is about 140 atmospheres so it's way more than the car tyre and then we release the air quickly so that it makes a big boom. We've got two of those devices going in sync and these days it's really cool because in the old days... When I first started this caper, you got this
2: boom, 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 boom,
4: sound out of them. So you have got this rumble and this bubble. We call it bubble power pulse. These days, we as the pulse as the air is released from the chamber, we re-inject some more air to keep the pulse nice and sharp, and we get a real. Boom. And depending on the water depth and the quality of the sediments beneath us, those guns will reach out and down through five or six kilometres of water very easily and then another two or three kilometres through the sediment. So it's a very powerful system. The reason why it works so well is because the ship that we're deploying them from is virtually silent. So we've got a really good signal-to-noise ratio and we try and pick the weather so that we don't have too much chop on the water making High frequency noise, and that we don't have too much swirl, tugging the recording device around, and, and introducing noise into the system. So it's very effective, and we, in comparison to the oil industry systems that get deployed, we're running at about ten percent of the punch that they would use. So it's a it's a small system. Normally, that in industry it'd be used for site investigation, for laying optic cut fibre cable or uh, little pipelines and, and the like. So it's it's a small system, but it's a good system and it works really well because we've got a silent ship. hope that wasn't
1: too much. No, that's fantastic. This is just so interesting. Okay, so you've got this very nifty technology, which is, you know, the whales are safe from, which is really important. What are you doing? Like what are you hoping to get out of all this information that you're getting back about the seafloor,
0: We are investigating sort of uh, mass failures happening along the East Australian margin, uh, primarily on the continental slope. So we're looking to investigate how the margin is changing and how features that we see in the continental slope along the margin are changing over time.
1: Do you want to just give us a quick like explanation of what a mass failure is?
0: Sure. So we see all kinds of different sediment movements happening along the continental margin uh, and mass failures, failures of sort of larger volumes and larger areas of sediment uh, moving sort of from the upper slope down to the lower slope. So we see things like submarine landslides, which are big underwater landslides, that move down the continental slope, moving sediment sort of from the continental shelf and upper slope down to the abyssal plain, which is, you know, the the deeper waters of the ocean. But we also see things like sediment creep happening where um, sediments of the continental slope are moving at a slower pace. And then we also see things like uh, turbidity currents and debris flows and all kinds of different movements of sediment from the upper slope down to the lower slope in the abyssal plain.
4: Yeah so that's um just to maybe to simplify things that you could imagine the big landslides as being a large chunk of material that moves downhill pretty quickly like a um, if you've ever played table hockey with the the puck and the air coming up through little tubes So we've got a a large slab moving across the slope and downhill, sometimes pretty rapidly. Then we've got the turbidity currents and think other things that are related called grain flows are a bit like the concrete slurry that comes down the the race in a concrete pour from the truck down into the the slab that you're making. So that's what we think of as a, a grain flow or a turbidity turbidity current that moves like a fluid like a liquid across the slope and the creeps are really slow that's just like if you've ever played with the digging a hole on the uh, on the beach or making a cone of sand you get a little slide of material a little lobe of stuff will come gently down the slope at very slow speed so that's what we think of as a creep and we've got evidence for all three Uh, Styles of motion of differing sizes and differing times and differing runout speeds and runout distances and all of that kind of thing. So it's, it's fairly complex. It's pretty hard to get on top of in one simple go. But I hope that helps. That should get us there.
3: And all of this really feeds into a bigger picture of understanding how the edge of our continent evolves through time and how sediment is transported off. The continent above the water and into the water, and then down out into the deep oceans.
4: And there's another consequence of this too, which is that the big hockey puck ones make a wave on the surface that looks like a tsunami if they go, if they're big enough and they go quick enough. So there's, it's not just basic science. We want to understand what's happening on the slope. We do want to do that, but there's a very real and useful public safety aspect to all of
1: this i do feel like to really get a handle on all of this we need sort of a whiteboard and multiple colors of marker and you know a bit of space and time for everyone to to have a chat about it maybe some really cool uh, 3d models as well but you're making, making it good, sound- <laughs> you're making it sound like it it sounds really busy under the water like from from up on top you know on a calm day it looks quite sort of chill, you just sort of assume that the bottom of the seafloor is, you know, not up to much. But it sounds like it could be up to a lot.
4: Yeah, that's right. There's plenty going on under the surface um, when it comes to the actions of waves and currents. Um, People have probably heard about the East Australian current that runs down uh, the east coast of Australia from the warm Sea in the north down to the southern uh, Tasman Sea in the south that current sweeps the bottom as it passes along the continental margin so it moves sediment around, it creates fascinating features at the seafloor and it also uh, erodes sediment and and picks it up and and puts it in um, other areas elsewhere and that current also runs on the continental slope which is uh, uh, sorry the continental shelf which is the shallower coastal marine area that extends out to about 200 meters below sea level and in that area we also have um, strong influence from the action of waves as waves come across the continental shelf and approach the coastline and so this mixture of waves and big swells and currents that run through time push all the sediment around and and make some interesting features and that gets buried over time and, and gives us our sediment layers which is what we were going looking for with our our seismic air guns to see the the history of these hydrodynamic processes and uh, and deposition along the continental shelf and the continental slope. And what a lot of people don't realise is that the current coastline hasn't been there for very long. And so if we look at the last million years or so, the sea level uh, and the coastline uh, that we know today is only really there for 10% of the time. And for most of the time, sea level is a lot lower, up to 120 metres, 130 metres uh, lower than it is today. And the coastline is out on the edge of the continental shelf. And during those times, our rivers are pumping out uh, sediment right onto the top of the slope where these submarine landslide beaches um, are found. So one of the other things we're looking at out here is that connection between coastal processes and the buildup of sediment on the continental slope, which can then slip away and, and cause these uh, large tsunamis. Uh, potentially, if it goes as the, uh, was it a hockey puck?
3: As, <laughs> I like as the as hockey a, puck
4: one, they're the dangerous one. Yeah, yeah, so if, as a, as a large creature, we, we could potentially produce a, a tsunami. Um, so there's a lot going on under the water, a lot of sediment movement, uh, a lot of change. And uh, we're out here uh, measuring that change and and also mapping areas for the very first time, so seeing the seafloor in brilliant detail and seeing beneath the seafloor itself uh, for the very first time. So we're really learning about these processes as we go.
1: It does sound like good fun, even if we're talking about, you know, the potential of tsunamis, which to people who are on the land right now and have up until now sort of felt fairly confident in, you know, if if there's a big tsunami, New Zealand gets hit. We're fine in Australia. Some of us might be feeling a bit less, uh, you know, confident right now. Does anyone want to talk to the tsunami bit?
4: Yeah. And so can I break in on that one yet? Because people, the other the one, the ingredient that we've left out of all of this is time. And this is geologists often think of time. They they think of a million years as being kind of ten seconds ago, and we think of five million years. Of, being yesterday and we think of 50 million years being last month because the planet's four and a half billion years old. So we've got this kind of very expanded view on time and all of these events that we're talking about, yes, they happen in real time, but each big event is separated by maybe 60 or even a 100,000 years. So there's a bit of a disconnect between what I think is being recent and just you know could happen anytime soon, because my time soon is maybe a hundred thousand years, whereas everybody else's anytime soon is tomorrow or the next week or the next week. So we've got to keep all of that time frame in front of mind when we have these conversations because otherwise we can get ourselves extremely terrified for absolutely no good reason. The chance of one of these things happening, you've got more chance of winning lotto than getting to see one of these tsunamis.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, they're important events to uh, study. We know that they are happening and they happen around the world. We have a very long historic and uh, prehistoric record of submarine landslide tsunami events happening. Some of them have been very large and very damaging. But fortunately for us along the east coast of Australia, the recurrence intervals, so how frequently these events are happening, is very low, like Tom said, upwards of one in every 50,000 years or so. Or even more,
4: even quite a bit
0: longer. Yeah, for a really big event, even uh, less frequent than that. So it's really not something to be worrying about if you're living on the coast. But in terms of the science and research, they are really interesting phenomenon to understand. And so, like Mike said, that's part of why we're out here, to um, try and understand them a little bit better and the mechanisms that cause them, particularly for the East Australian coastline. And a lot of the data that we're collecting while we're out here will help us refine
3: some of the modelling work that we're doing. So we take all the information that we collect while we're out here and we take it home and we put it into computer models that allow us to predict what sort of tsunami might form And then we're able to use that information to inform emergency management services like the SES in terms of what they might expect. But what we're doing while we're out here can really help us fine tune those models to give the best predictions possible.
4: And not just the physical, this is how the water's going to be affected if the hockey puck goes, but also how often the hockey puck goes and when it started going and maybe it's been turned off even. So we'll do some basic geological sample collection so that we can really, really get a precise idea of when all of the action has happened and how how frequent it might be.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, I think one of the core things to being less scared is to have more information about something. So it sounds like this is going to be, well, I mean, obviously it's awesome research, but also putting a lot of minds at, minds at rest, at ease. What I would love to know, because we have such a diversity of people in this room, is would we be able to go around the room and have you each explain a little bit about what your role is while you're on the ship?
3: Tom, do you want to start?
4: Oh, okay. And keep scientist. it brief. I'm the chief scientist. The backstop's with me. The, the I discuss what... We might do and how we might do it and timing and what's the best use of the ship's time because we're, it's not a cheap operation. It's, it's, it's $120,000 a day to be, to have this show on the road. So we want to, we want to spend that money in the best way possible. And the thing about geoscience cruises, what we're doing in comparison to say biology or oceanography is that we really have to adapt the day plan based on what we get pretty much every day so i uh, overnight for example i pretty much reconfigured where we were going to sample on the basis of the data that we got the day before so it's it's it pre- can be pretty intense and then i have to you know discuss that with the buddies discuss that with hannah and mike and with david area engineer and, and and make sure and our seismic team that we've got on board as well to make sure that i haven't missed something and to make sure that we're all pretty tight agreement about what we're doing so it's um yeah that's what I do that's how I spend my days and if I'm lucky I get six hours sleep and if I'm unlucky I get three or four and if I'm really lucky like I was the other day I get I get a full seven and a half hours I was so so bouncy and perky they they nearly had to tie me into a chair
3: (laughs) (laughs) so I'm the alternate chief scientist so Tom leads the voyage and leads the day shift so we're working 24 hours a day in shifts so Tom leads the shift from midday to midnight and I lead the shift from midnight to midday which is why I'm tired and can't introduce myself properly (laughs) and then I work with Tom and the other principal investigators that we have on board to work on our plan and what we're going to do and
4: when we're going to do it and how we're going to do it. Yeah, well, uh, I'm uh, Mike again um, and I'm one of the principal investigators of the voyage. Um, this is my third trip out to sea in this uh, series of several voyages on the uh, submarine landslides and tsunamis project. So I'm involved in everything from assisting the chief with their planning and uh, siding on sampling sites and those types of aspects being involved in all of the operations so we haven't talked about what we do in terms of sampling but we we throw all sorts of interesting kit off the side of the boat and the back of the boat and and pull up sediments and part of my expertise is is in the um the nature of those sediments looking at, at cores and, and what we pull up from the deep and relating that to the remote sensing data, which is this multi-beam swath mapping and beautiful imaging of the seafloor and the seismic data as well. And then, of course, when we get back to uh, land, there'll be some time spent in, in putting uh, a lot of this data together and carrying on some research uh, so we can we can uh, analyze the data and, and, and hopefully uh, come up with some interesting answers to some of the questions out here.
2: So, yeah.
0: So, again, I'm I'm Kendall. And as Mike was just saying, one of the really exciting things that we get to do on board on this voyage is collect some really cool sediment cores. And so part of collecting those sediment cores is actually opening them up and seeing what's in there and um, starting to take some samples. So I'm sort of in charge of managing the lab on board to make sure that the sediment cores that we are collecting are all catalogued properly and that the samples are all organized and that everybody that's working in the lab sort of is comfortable with what they're doing and that we're being as efficient as a, as possible with um, getting... As much out of the interesting sediment cores and data that we're collecting
5: so yeah hi I'm David so uh, yeah part of the CSIRO support team there's multiple support teams on board Uh, specifically I work for our our data acquisition and processing team so we're responsible for making sure that all the data that um, is coming in is being backed up it's secure it's accessible uh, to everyone on board and for any computing resources and infrastructure we have that That's available to all of our scientists on board. But apart from our team, there's also the field operations team, which helps uh, deploy all the instrumentation that we're sending in for data collection. Uh, We've also got our seagoing instrumentations team, which um, looks after the instruments and makes sure that they're in working order. And uh, we've got our uh, geophysical surveying and mapping team, which is doing um, a lot of the bathymetry mapping
2: and sub profiling that's being conducted out here. So as one of the students on board, we are doing a lot of monitoring the sub-bottom profile, see if we know anything important that we see of note, watching the multi-beam and spending a lot of time in the lab processing the sediment cores that Kendall was talking about, but also we're just talking to a lot of people, learning a lot about new jobs in the marine field and just trying to take as much as we can here.
4: Because it's big. One thing Kendall left out was the modelling stuff. So I think maybe the yeah the computer modelling of of the tsunami that we might get from the, the hockey puck going down the hill. That's that's that won't happen on the ship, but that's something that you do. So some words about that would be really good.
0: Yeah, sure. So so as part of my PhD that I completed over a year ago now with Hannah as my supervisor. I looked at some sediment cores that were collected on previous voyages um, out along the margin to understand uh, sort of the same things that we're investigating on this voyage, but uh, sort of earlier research. As part of that research, I also input some of those sedimentology results into some numerical modeling software, which allowed me to investigate the potential for these sort of Submarine landslide events along the margin to generate tsunamis. And if they do generate tsunamis, what the properties of these tsunamis would be, how they would propagate towards the coastline, what sort of impacts at the coastline we might see. So that's something that we're sort of trying to investigate a little bit further on this voyage by having a look at these submarine landslide events that we see along the margin by identifying where they kind of end up. And that helps me to validate some of the modeling that I did in my PhD and gives us a little bit more information about the potential tsunami hazard that these events have. So yeah, that's not really something that I'm doing on board, but it is something that I've done, which is relevant (laughs)
4: yeah and it's a major part of the whole project yeah but that's something that we do when we get back to shore
0: yeah absolutely it's a it's a really key part of the process is taking the information that we're getting out here and applying it to um like hannah said earlier emergency management and things like that for you know coastal areas to understand um, the potential hazard that these sorts of events might have
3: and I think the other thing to point out is that while we're here for 37 days at sea, the science is definitely not over at the 37-day mark. <laughs> fact, no, we've <laughs> barely scratched <laughs> the surface. You know that we we hope so far to collect, you know, and still hope um, to collect data that will and samples that will provide you know really interesting research for years to come. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us when we get off the vessel.
2: Yeah,
0: well, the work I did in my PhD was on some data collected in 2013. And I did my PhD on that and a lot of other research has been done on that. So I can only imagine how much more there's going to be after this voyage, which is very, very exciting for future students and future researchers.
2: So, yeah. Yeah. The, the
4: 2013 trip, we've really only just finished working up all of that data. Uh, that trip was done with 12 scientists total including the CSIRO field support team and the people on board this time we've got a science team of over 30 people Uh, we're out with a bigger ship we're out for twice nearly three times as long so I'm 62 (laughs) and I think what we get over the coming couple of weeks will keep me going until I'm 82. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very intense while we're out here. We get a lot of stuff. It's a big operation. And then we'll spend, I'll, me in particular will spend a lot of time, a long time, pulling all of the data apart, figuring out what it means and coming up with better models, better understanding better constraints uh, on the natural prices, but also on the implications it has for public safety.
1: I feel like a great follow-up question is for David. So we're talking about data acquisition, bit of backup. Have you got like a ballpark of how much data is being collected?
5: Uh, Well, it depends on the voyage. We can have Um, you know multiple terabytes of data uh, which is usually the standard if we have um, imagery being collected on board uh, which i believe will send the camera down a couple of times here yeah that can take up to a couple of terabytes yeah so the the heavier voyages that we do where it's all imagery that can get into the tens to you know around 50 60 terabytes (laughs) that's so
0: much time
5: (laughs) how does that compare to say, a high definition movie a uh, high-definition movie is a few gigabytes, so, yeah. It's wow. So hundreds and hundreds, yeah. your entire video collection. <laughs> yeah, ten, tens of thousands. Wow.
0: Thousands, <laughs> tens of thousands,
1: yeah. Okay, so we're talking bigger than Netflix is what, what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs>
5: no, I wouldn't say quite that big, no.
1: <laughs>
0: There's a lot of stuff on Netflix.
5: <laughs> but, yeah, Standard Voyage, I would say, is a few terabytes.
1: That's a lot. Just think if for listeners who are listening and don't know what a terabyte is, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned, Kendall and Mike, you mentioned that there's like more specific like core things going down. You just mentioned imagery. How do you work out, like, because obviously you can't take as many cores as you can like run the air gun. How do you work out where the points are that deserve like that level of in-depth analysis sampling.
4: Yeah, so um, the first thing we do is is the uh, the seafloor mapping uh, and the seismic uh, data, which we call remote sensing. So we're essentially driving the boat along and and uh, collecting all this um, wonderful data from the seafloor. As we do that, every every shift, every day, we review that data as it comes in, and we're looking for interesting features. So we're looking for. Evidence of past submarine landslides, or if we're looking below the surface, we might be looking at older, older seabed surfaces that have been buried, and we're looking for for places where they where they approach the modern seabed, so we can get at them with uh, with our different uh, bits of equipment, like our jumbo uh, piston corer, uh, which allows us to get up to twenty five meters into the seabed. So we're, we're going through and we're looking at all that uh, data as we collect it uh, and we're trying to find the best places to get the best samples because it does take time to, to get at the seabed and to do a sample in, in you know, 4,000 metres water depth. It takes several hours to send something down and get a sample. So it's not quite like sending something to the moon or Mars, which takes a little bit longer, but you've really got to ration your... Um, your sampling to try and get the the best bang for buck so there's a lot of uh, thinking and reviewing uh, that goes on and then we pick those positions uh, for the best sea conditions and, and the best time to to get the best samples
1: is someone able to tell listeners what a call looks like because we've, we've all heard about cores, but i don't think we know what an an undersea core might look like. Maybe Jess?
2: So cores, no cores look the same. So you'll get cores and they just look like one big chunk of mud and then other cores will look like this beautiful marble pattern. So depending on the sediment and what Materials are in there. Will depend on what the core looks like. You'll get a lot of modelling in there, or you'll get all these different grey patches. Just yeah, very. It's very pretty mud. In a nutshell,
3: <laughs> that's a great description. I think pretty mud, pretty yeah, mud. pretty mud <laughs> patterns,
0: yeah, yeah. Patterns in
3: it. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well
0: done. Yeah, and sometimes and they- you see like sand deposits in there, which is really interesting. Sometimes they. I really like grey-coloured, sometimes dark grey, which doesn't sound as interesting <laughs> maybe to people listening, but to everybody on board, it's very exciting.
4: <laughs> and we, we even get those mud ball conglomerates. Yeah. Which are really, they're really cool. Yeah
0: they're, yeah, they're sort of really um, big rounded chunks of um, sediment that we see within a relatively uniform sediment core, which make it, Really interesting to split open and sample, and like I said, very exciting for everybody on board.
5: <laughs> we we also have multiple cores on board too that go to different lengths. So depending on the core, we can go from a couple of meters to about ten meters depth um, into the ocean floor.
3: And and when they come back on board, what we end up with as as the science party on board is is in essence a long length of what looks like PVC drain pipe. And we cut it up into one-meter-long sections and put caps on the end and then we split it down lengthways and cut it open to reveal sort of two halves of a long cylinder and then we're looking at the patterns that we see within that core.
1: And what kind of testing will you do on it other than, you know, aesthetic appreciation?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the aesthetic appreciation is, is a large part of it. But so what our team from the University of Newcastle is primarily doing is we're doing sort of detailed core logging. So as we look at the core, we look at it from top to bottom, each core section, and we essentially describe the physical features that we're seeing, you know, when we describe things like color, Uh, We use Munsell color charts, which give actual sort of scientific classifications to colors. So there are—it's
3: essentially the scientific version of of visual appreciation. Exactly,
0: (laughs) exactly. So yes, there are many different shades of grey.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Really? Oh
3: oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I
4: get it. It's yeah, it's a a bit like using the paint chart in the in the in the, in the hardware store <laughs> to match it all up. But yeah. the, co- the colour variations really go together with grain size variations Yeah, as well, so. exactly.
0: So one of the other things that we do is take small samples of the sediment down the core to try and understand once we get off the ship, we'll analyse these samples to try and understand the different properties of the sediment grains. So uh, essentially the grain size, which will help us understand more what these sediments are composed of, whether they're coarser or they're finer, are they more sandy, are they sort of more clay composed. And then there is some geotechnical testing that is also happening on board by the geotech team uh, led by David Airy.
4: And I might speak to that, but again, in that visual appreciation and the sampling, we also uh we take samples out for carbon dating, which everyone's probably reasonably familiar with to get the how fast the upper sediments are collecting on the seafloor, the rate of change, that sort of thing. But also in the deeper parts of the core and when we've penetrated really old material, we use the fossil content. So we use the the I call I'm, I amuse everybody by calling them the wee beasties. So we've got foraminifera, which are these really beautiful Spherical animal skeletons for unicellular animals. There are dinoflagellates and discoasters that we can use to really get a precise long term age on the material. So we will take samples out and send them off to some of our colleagues for dating using the fossil content. So we'll use the, it's called stratigraphy but the the wee beasties in there will give us a very accurate age with the older material that carbon dating just can't reach. We could also use some chemical methods to date the material eventually as well. The other really big part of the voyage, and it's the, the team from Sydney University's engineering, civil engineering school, they're called geotechnical engineers. They measure the strength and the density and the... Uh, Also, they're interested in grain size as well, but we have various ways of figuring out how strong the different sediment layers are. And that's really important for understanding the failure processes. Do these things move as slurries? Do they move as the hockey puck? What sort of conditions are required to mobilize that material? Because that's one of the real paradoxes of all of this is that the sediments are actually really very strong. And they're on relatively gentle slopes, so the, the sediments would be stable uh, up to on up to a 30 or even a 35 degree slope. The majority of the slopes on the ocean floor that we're dealing with in the sediment layers are 3 to 5 degrees. And so the sediments that are there are, are, are too strong to fail, and yet it's apparent that they have. Now, that might be slow erosion by some of these ocean currents that we've been talking about and upwelling bottom current so in, in addition to the surface currents going south there are deep water cold currents coming north from antarctica so every year when this when the ice pack expands it and freezes it sends really cold really saline water to the bottom and that makes its way up into the towards the equator and it gets trapped on the toe of the slope and some of those currents particularly when the ice pack is really large during the when sea level drops and the planet gets really cold uh, some of those currents might be really strong four or five knots even i suspect and that would erode some of these features out so we're that's all part of the story why did the stuff fail what why is it so strong but yet we have these failure features and that's what the geotech team do and they 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 put in a thing called a vein which is uh like um it's a cross it's like a couple well we can imagine more simply we stick it stick a paddle pop stick so uh, into the sediment and then we rotate it and we measure how much force is required to rotate it and so we can work out from that how strong the material is and then we take the samples back to the laboratory and we do much more sophisticated versions of that paddle pop stick test and we're doing we take a little cylinder out and we we crush it to work out how much force is required to to deform it and to break it, and that gives us a sense of the strength of the material as well. And that all f- feeds into the modeling of how the failures occur, which then that informs the modeling about how the material might move down the slope. Again, informing modeling that gives us a sense of the, the waves, the tsunamis that might be generated. So it's a, it's, there's a fairly integrated team. So the group from U- the University of Newcastle are focused on this, the cores and the geology of those cores. And the Sydney University team on board is focused on the strengths and the, the failure mechanisms of the slides.
1: It's fascinating, isn't it? It sounds like a whole mystery to be unpicked. You could clearly write a quite an overly dramatised book about this if you wanted to.
4: It's great to have a paradox. It's great to have something that shouldn't be there but is and trying to understand it, and that's what we've got. We've got a couple of them. So it's there are mm-hmm. some, It's it's really it's really interesting
1: stuff. Makes for fun science. It does. It also like sounds like it makes for really good teamwork as well. This is definitely not a one person job at all.
0: No, it's
3: it's a really critical part of being at sea is that all the teams have to work together. The you know, Cyro team support all the work that we do and we can't do the work that we do without them, and we also work very closely with the ship's crew, the you know the deckhands who are putting gear out over the side for us, and working they're working very closely with the CSIRO team as well. And then within the science party, we have the geotech team working with um, the team who are more the marine geology team doing the sedimentology, and then all of that feeds into the modelling when we get back home, and we're tying the sedimentology into the remote sensing, so the seafloor mapping and the subseafloor mapping. And then even as simple as, you know, the day crew have to hand over to the night crew and then the night crew have to hand over to the day crew. So without teamwork, this whole thing would fall over.
4: And we get really tired because they're long, hard days. So that that that's getting getting everyone happy and communicating everything appropriately. That's really tough. And then one, the, the, uh, there's another team again that we haven't mentioned yet, which is the... the the ship's officers, so the, the, the master of the vessel and the, the officers that run the watches, it's actually a really complex and difficult thing to position the ship, particularly when we're sampling either for a core or for, we're going to do some dredging later today. Positioning the ship in the currents and the winds and actually keeping a really controlled course over the, over the seafloor locations that we're really interested in is a serious art, it's ve- and it's very different to what most seafarers would experience. We- when we dredge tonight, we're essentially putting out a 2,000-metre-long anchor with the intent of hooking the ship up to the bottom and then pulling a big chunk of rock off the bottom. Now, that, is- that just runs counter to every natural instinct of a sailor to hook up to the bottom and actually rip it off. (laughs) That is, that's kind of, that's a no-go area. That's not what you really want to do and yet the scientist, the geologist comes along and says, I want a piece of the bottom and I want the hardest bottom that I can find and have a piece of that as well. So we're doing
3: that intentionally. And we're (laughs) doing
4: that intentionally. Normally that's a recipe for, you know, really, really tense times up there on the bridge and and we do it as a matter of course. So there's a there's a real shout out to the to the crew that manage the, the winches and the and the, the equipment and also the ship's officers that keep us nice and safe while we do this pretty dangerous
3: thing. And to add to that, the engineers who keep the ships running, yeah. uh, they keep all the systems on the ship running, keep us moving along safely, yeah. and to the caterers and the cooks who keep us well fed.
4: So Very well fit. So too well fed. Well fit. <laughs>
1: too well fed, some might say. Is it okay to start with dessert? <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I feel like the, the chefs need a shout out as well. But it's there's so many people involved. Um that that was some really good dramatic descriptions just then. To start wrapping up, I was wondering if everyone would like to say what their favorite bit about being at sea or doing shipboard research is.
2: I think as a uni student we're always handed data sets to work with so it's really exciting to actually make the data sets and then work with them.
5: Yeah, for me, um, I mean, just, you know, having a job to be at sea all the time is fantastic for the adventure, but also just the range of science projects we see on board from all the geoscience to all the oceanographic exploration. Um, there's just, you know, so much science to, to be across, to get involved in and, um, yeah, enjoy.
0: I think my favourite Part of being on board so far has been working with all the students. We have a really, really good group of undergrad students from the University of Newcastle here with us. And as somebody who recently finished their PhD and was a student for a very long time, it's really fun now to sort of be on the other side of it and working with really enthusiastic, um, amazing students and sort of, you know, trying to teach them some stuff that I've learned and see how excited they are about the research that we're doing.
4: Well, I don't mind some uh, wild and exhilarating seas. So um, for me, it's a, a constant uh, battle between good conditions for data collection and, uh, and wild conditions for a bit of adventure. <laughs> and we've had some wild conditions already. We've had 50 knot winds, uh, which, which changed our program. Oh, yeah. um, we've had some uh, big fall coming in now. But yeah, I mean, the, the most uh, satisfying thing is the aspect of, of discovery and, and seeing things, seeing the seafloor for the first time. And, and thinking about what that means and, and throwing down some uh, equipment and uh, pulling up a chunk of it, as uh, Tom
3: says. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's, it's hard to add to that. I think, you know, what Mike said has captured a lot of it. But, you know, it can be something as simple as splitting open a section of core. You know, you, you send a core down, you spend, you, get to your, you, know, you spend hours picking a station. I should say to start with, you know, we've spent two to three years planning this trip. That's once we were awarded ship time. You know, we had to put the application in for time on this vessel before that. And we had
4: five guys to do that, or was it
3: six? Maybe it wasn't six, but it was a lot, you know, <laughs> and we got awarded the ship time. You spend two to three years planning. We spent a week in quarantine so that we didn't bring COVID to sea with us. We then spent, you know, hours on board planning what we're going to do. You get to your site, you spend about an hour setting up the cora. It takes you know, nearly two hours to get to the bottom. It does what it does at the bottom. You cross your fingers and hope that it worked. It takes another couple of hours to come back up takes another half hour to get back on deck. You know, you finally get your hands on it, and then you get to split it open, and you see that you have this sample of, you know, as Jess beautifully described, modelled mud that can tell us such a such an interesting story and inform the science we do so well. That splitting open of the core is just it's just a really exciting moment to see.
0: Satisfying. It's very satisfying. It's
3: very satisfying, and it and it makes you feel like you've really succeeded in in hitting some of the points that you wanted to hit. On this very long journey of trying to understand this scientific problem.
4: And I guess for me it's the variety. It's I've, I've been working on this problem uh, first as an assistant back in the 80s and now as the guy that's kind of got the overview of the whole thing and it's the variety of what we're doing out here that is really stimulating. It's working with the seismic processing crew, it's Working with the skipper on the bridge to make sure that he's not pushing the ship too hard. That there's a bit, there's a little bit. We we don't have to hit the spot, the core spot, plus or minus three meters. That we've got a hundred meters if necessary. It's working with the field ops crew that put the gear over the side, talking to the um, computer data management people about where everything is and how to get it, uh, how to get the systems to all talk to each other. It's working with the planning team that put the roots into the computer so that we're going everywhere but i guess i started off in this game with pretty brutal and blunt tools the dredge there's nothing more exciting than bringing up a really handsome dredge sample it's because it's exciting you're hooked up to the bottom there's tension on the bridge we have um you know i wouldn't call it white knuckle moments but it's uh the the sea gods throw challenges at you and the, the chal- getting overcoming those challenges and getting the stuff it's incredibly satisfying and and integrating all of those different pieces of information pulling it together as a whole big story and su- solving that paradox because it's all going towards solving the paradox so it for me it's it's the whole thing i can't really pick out what's my favorite bit i love the bathymetry i love the seismic stuff. I've got one of the best seismic processors in the country and one of the best interpreters in the country are on the ship with us. That One's an old friend and one's an old friend of the other one. And learning from Robert how to process the seismic that we get is just its a new challenge for me. And working with Bronwyn who has an oil industry perspective on the science whereas I come to it with an academic perspective, telling Robert that we're going to shoot up a canyon, and he says, no one ever does that. That's not. How do we get that to work? Well, we will. And it's just every day is a new challenge, every day is exciting, so it's it's the whole thing for me.
1: I think well, not just me being jealous, but I think all the listeners will be quite jealous as well right now. and we are very keen to hear what the solution to this paradox is, because now you've got us asking the question, and you know at some point we would love the answer because that would be very cool.
4: Don't hold your breath might take a while.
1: and <laughs> <Yeah>, no pressure. <laughs>
4: Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks for that.
1: Thank you all so much for sharing this wonderful insight into, you know, shipboard research and what's going on out there. Because, it, this has just been absolutely fantastic. You're all doing an amazing job. Uh, for those of you who've been up since midnight, you know, maybe it's time time to go to bed. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And I'm. Um, really looking forward to hearing about the next installation of this adventure
2: thanks amelia thank you amelia
4: thank you you. that's been fun
1: Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Research this year, that would be amazing. Uh, You can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.